Right, we are continuing our study through Revelation. We are coming, coming close to the middle of our study. And just kind of recap a little bit of what we've been doing in Revelation. We, we cover so far very little bit about the tribulation period. You guys don't know what the tribulation period is? It is a time of great judgment coming upon this world. A time when God has ordained, God has has ordained a time in the future. He's saying he's going to come and he's going to judge this world and he's going to do it so that he can prepare for the coming of his kingdom, kingdom of peace, kingdom of joy, kingdom of hope. And this tribulation period is seven years. And throughout from Revelation chapter 6 to chapter 19, we see just how much is covered, how much what's going on, the details of what's going on during this seven-year period of tribulation. And thus far, we've only covered what we call the six seals. The six seals reveal to us six judgments from God. And Revelation, what it does is it goes through these series of sevens. Right? We first saw the seven churches, then we have the seven seals. Next, we'll see the seven trumpets. And then there will be the seven bowls of wrath. And right now, during this time, in chapter 7, which is where we're at right now, we have this little interlude. This little, this little text that doesn't seem to follow the pattern of Revelation, of what John is seeing. Right? John saw six seals open, six out of seven, and it's like suddenly it paused. And we get this introduced where John, the Apostle John, sees this grand vision of heaven. And that's where we are now. And the question that I want to ask is, why is this interlude here? Why does suddenly John see this, this, this scene of 144,000 of, of people of tribes of Israel, and then a great multitude of people from every nation, why does John get this glimpse, this scene of all these people gathered together around the throne of God worshiping him before the seven seals revealed to him? And I would argue that what this is showing us is showing us really where all this is going. It's reminding John that, yes, you're going to see a lot of judgment, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. You're going to wonder why, what's going on. You're going, to, you're going to see just bloodshed, and it's going to seem like it's dark times. But God's reminding John, there's hope in the end. There's hope in the end because there's a purpose behind all this, and the purpose behind it is good. The purpose behind it all is to remind us that this is to bring back true worship. And this shows to us the heart of God. The heart that God has for us, the heart that God has for this world. And this is, a, this is the same heart that we see throughout scripture that God has revealed to us. God has shown, shown to us over and over again how God cares for this world, how God loves this world. It's so awesome to kind of just see all this. Let's just take a few, look at, just take a look at a few verses here. Psalm 98. Verse 2, the Lord has made his salvation, has made known his salvation. 
He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Not just Israel, but the nations. He is, he is revealing himself to everyone. Isaiah 49, verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserve of Israel. So here God is saying, talking to his servant, and we know later his servant is Jesus Christ. He's telling him, it's, it's too light a thing for you just to simply save Israel and Jacob. I will do more with you. And he says this, I will make you my servant as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. God cares for the nations, and he continues to seek to save all people from every language, from every, every people group. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, we see here how God cares for every person, every sinner out there. Have I, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Yeah, God cares about sinners. And we personally know that because we too were once in that same position. We too were once sinners before God, and yet we recognize that God cares for us. And so we turn, turn towards Him. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 is probably the most clearest verse about this. We're here, Paul writes. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We see here that God is a God, not of just Israel, not of just Jacob. God is not just a God of America, not just a God of this church, SCBC Wana, not just a God of who, who has, who just only cares for those who are intellectual enough to know him or to believe him, not just for those who have the capacity for faith. He cares about all people. God is God of this world, and he seeks to save all people. And so what God is doing here, what God is doing in Revelation, is going through this tribulation period, is he's making himself known, and he's preparing for himself a group of worshipers from all nations. Which brings the question for us now today, what are we doing? What are we doing for God's kingdom? This is not a game. This is not just a hobby. This is not just an after school activity. This is God working in this world sovereignly. To bring you to know him, and to bring the people around you to know him. When we think about history, we think about what's going on in our world today, we think about all things, all events, from natural disasters to political debates, everything God has under control and God is using. God is using all of it to make himself known. We see here that God desires all people to know him. So let's take a look at this passage. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. 
Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. We'll look at verse 9 to 17. I'm going to read the whole passage to us. This is God's word. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm tree branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where have they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, therefore they are before the throne of God, a servant day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We will see here God bring together worshipers. And he's calling all his worshipers to worship him and bring true worship. And here we see two calls to worship, two ways God desires his people to worship him. And the first way we see is a worship through reverence. A worship through reverence. And we see here, we see a multitude of people. And before all this, right, before, the, before this kind of starts, we saw last week, well, I wasn't here, but PT. We saw last week that there was 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And we know that there are a lot of views about what this tribe is, right? And let me just quickly just walk through this. Some people will say these 144,000 is literally, it's literally Israel. And so Israel then is distinct. And here, in starting verse 9, this great multitude that no one can number is then the church. This is separate from Israel. There are distinct entities here. Some people argue that's, that's what we see here. Others will say the 144,000 of Israel and the great multitude are one of the same. This is purely all symbolic. All this represents God's people. Just labeled in different ways. Then there are some who would say that what John heard earlier in chapter seven, if you read in chapter seven, verse four, he says he heard the number of the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. But he heard that. But what he heard and what he saw 
Verse 9, I, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude, for he saw was different. And so he heard that the Israel was redeemed, but when he looked and saw was not just Israel, but people from every nation. Kind of like a middle ground stance. In the sense. Kind of see a little bit of both in there. Now, regardless of what position you hold, what we do see here is indeed that what John sees is a great number of people, a great number of saints, a great number of worshipers coming before God. And what is most important that we get a glimpse of here is that God desires to save all people. Whether or not that means there's a special place for Israel or it's all grouped together, it doesn't really matter. What we see here is that God desires all people from every nation to be saved. And this is amazing, right? This is amazing because we are all, we're all human beings, right? We are all human beings creating God's image. But recognize that each one of us, when we look at each other, I mean, yes, for most of us, we're all Asian here, but we're different, right? We, we have male and female. We also have different hairstyles, different skin complexion, different eye colors, we're different height, different weight. We're all different. We're all distinct. And, and, and so we see here that all these distinctions matters. It matters. Yes, we are united in Christ. We are one in Christ, but yet there's still distinction being made. Even in heaven, there's distinction. Because when John looked, he can tell that these are people from all nations, all tribes, all languages. He can tell. He can tell their distinction, even though they were one in Christ. These were worshippers before God. They were clothed in white robes. They have palm branches in their hand. They're honoring God. They're worshiping him. And when we see here that they're, worship, they're worshiping God, and in, in the presence of God, there's also a lamb. And we know the lamb to be the lamb of God, the son of God, Jesus Christ. We see here how God, who sits on the throne, most likely referring to God the Father and the Son here, are of one. God is one. God, Father and Son, in perfect unity. There is, again, one God. And we understand there are three persons and one God. There's Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not mentioned here, but he's still present there. God, Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three and one, distinctions, yet unified together as one. Similarly to how all his worshipers are. Distinct and yet unified. And all creatures here, everyone, the angels, the people, the elders, the four living creatures, all of them here are worshiping God. And a word here for worship found here in verse 11 says that they were they fell on their faces before the throne, they worship God. The word here for worship is an act of submission. It's, it's an act of saying. I, we recognize that you are God. You are the one who sits on the throne. You're different from the rest of us. You're greater than the rest of us. You're unmatched. You alone are God. You reign. We submit our lives before you. We bow down before you. We are unworthy before you. 
rubies. This don't have. This. This is everything. This is what we're all called to do. We're called to worship God because God is worthy of all praise, of all honor. And, and this is God sitting on his throne. And look at what they're crying out to him. They're crying out to him, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Salvation. Because through salvation, we come to know God. Salvation reveals all of God's perfect attributes. What we call God's perfections. God's plan of salvation reveals every aspect of who he is to us. And this is what we see from the beginning. God created the earth. God created all things. And this is important because we have to recognize there is one God. He's above any other God that humans can come up with. He is one God. He created all things. And more than that, he created us, human beings, in his image. We represent this God. All people represent this God. No one is exempt from that. God created all things, but yet mankind has failed. Mankind has failed and mankind has sinned against God. Mankind has ruined the image of God. We see division, we see war, we see disputes, we see disunity, we see immorality all around us. And we understand those things are wrong because we understand that we were meant for something better. We were meant for something good and we can call those acts evil because they do not represent God. But God, though we deserve judgment, God did not simply cast us off the judgment. Instead, he put in place a plan of salvation. And all this, the whole Bible reveals to us this great plan of salvation. And throughout scripture, we see how this plan of salvation shows us, demonstrates to us, reveals to us who God is. And as we study through scripture, we study through even our own lives, application of scripture in our life, we come to just see different facets of God and we come to a deeper appreciation of who he is. I mean, we, when we see here in Revelation, this end goal of all nations gathered to recognize that this is what God has planned since the beginning. Genesis chapter 17, verse four to six, God calls Abram, Abraham out, one man. He recognized that human beings needed a representative. He is someone to represent them before God, someone to mediate them. So he calls Abraham. And this is what he tells Abraham. He says this, behold, my covenant is with you, and you, Abraham, shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Get that. Not just a father of Israel, who is indeed a descendant of Abraham, direct lineage of Abraham. He's going to be more than a father of one nation. He says he's going to be a father of a multitude of nations. And therefore, he renames Abraham. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 
God's plan since the beginning was always to save the nations, the world. This is why we are here, sitting here in this room right now. Because this God that Scripture describes to us, it's not just a Jewish God, but it's a God of this world, God of all nations. And we get to see just how wonderful this God is. I mean, God has kept his promise. And yes, it took thousands of years for this promise to see its fulfillment. And it's still being fulfilled today. We won't see that complete fruition of this fulfillment until heaven. But just know just how throughout time, throughout history, how God works and how God reveals himself to us. Think about how when God gave this promise to Abraham, think about how Abraham's descendants needed to learn. Right? They failed too. They failed many times. Jacob himself wrestled with God. They had to be humble. Then think about the descendants of Abraham, captive in Egypt. Israel being enslaved in Egypt. They're crying out to God. What happened to this promise? God heard their cries. He sent Moses. And Moses, by God, through the Spirit of God, freed Israel, freed God's people from captivity. And, they, and God gave them the law. But then Israel fell. Israel sinned against God. Israel worshiped a golden calf. They barely remembered the God who saved them. They instead worshiped a golden calf. And so they spent years in the wilderness. And after those years are over, God again, by his grace, says, I remember my promise. I'll bring you to the promised land. Brings Israel to the promised land. Tells them, here you will find blessing. Worship me. Yet Israel failed. And we see years of cycles of sin that Israel goes through. King after king, filled with disappointment. And all of this we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, all the way until the coming of Christ. This is amazing. We see how God, throughout the Old Testament, constantly works judgment and then salvation, judgment and salvation. All of it showing how much God loves his people, yet God hates sin. God is working to reveal himself in the nation. And then we see Christ. And then just stop there. When Jesus came, he was born, he became a man. But with the man who was born, he was facing the threat of death. And so Mary and Mary and Joseph had to flee, had to make sure to protect Jesus, flee the land, only to come back later. Jesus didn't have to grow up, had to go through the teenage years, had to become an adult. And then Jesus finally started his ministry, called his disciples. But in his ministry, he faced opposition. He faced the wrath of the religious leaders. His own people. His own people questioned him and hated him so much that they put him on the cross. And on the cross, he was nailed there. And on the cross, it seems like God's plan of salvation is going to fail. And yet, no, God did something amazing. He shows us how he can work through evil to do amazing things. Because the greatest evil, arguably, is 
the murderer of his son, a righteous man. And yet through that act, God brings salvation available to all people. Because Jesus came to this earth not to represent Israel, not to represent male figures, not to represent religious leaders. He came to represent humanity. And he died on the cross, he died in place of you. But it didn't just stop there. Because on the third day, God raised Christ up from the dead, representing the victory he has over sin and death, saying that death will not have its final say. Evil will not have the final say. God will have his victory. And through the resurrection comes the birth of the church. And the church, the church is represented by all people. Not just the Jews, but Jews and the nations. All those who have faith in Christ. All those who believe. I mean, when we think about this story, we think about how God has worked throughout salvation, how God is even right now working his church to preserve his church, his saints. I mean, it's no wonder we say blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God alone. All of this, all of these attributes belong to God forever and ever. That is who our God is. Salvation reveals God to us. And we, we come to appreciate that. We come to see that. We come to just see how awesome our God is. What, what we're saying here, what this passage is showing to us, what it's telling us is that man's greatest joy Man's greatest joy is found in the glory of God. Man's greatest joy is not found in success in this world. It's not found in fame or money. It's not even found in finding one's true self. All these things only provide temporary pleasures, but it doesn't actually satisfy the soul. Right? When we pursue these things, we still sometimes pursue these themes. I get tempted to pursue these themes. Right? One of the things I feel like when, when we say die to myself, and I'm like thinking to myself, what am I doing to die to myself? And I, one of the first things that popped in my head is, I can't buy Disney <laughs> you know, There are certain things that we just desire in this world. And, you know, I, I love Disney I, I love now. I wish I can, I can have a past, but yet I recognize it's a luxury. And even I'm there, it doesn't necessarily satisfy my soul. The greatest joy of man is found in the glory of God. Alone. I mean, even when we think about man's purpose, our purpose, and there's a lot of things out there that tell us what our purpose is. Our purpose is to fix this world, to solve poverty, to solve hunger. To, to bring world peace, to save the rainforest, to move to the moon, to explore, discover new things, to find our true nature. We can claim all these different purposes and we try to pursue them, try to figure them out and 
not all these things are bad, but the ultimate satisfaction, the ultimate end, the only purpose, the ultimate purpose of who we are is found in God. The this is this the implications of this is huge because this tells us this tells us that we are not gathered here because we believe in the same thing. We are gathered here because God has gathered you and God is continuing to gather his people from every place. This is our God, a God who rules in righteousness, a God who reigns on high, God who's king of this world, who deserves our worship. And though, and though we can come here and we can think through all these different reasons why we're here, all these, all these reasons why we think, you know, we're here because here we should be, we're here because we're just looking for answers, we're here because of our friends, we're here because there's someone I like. We should be here for all these different reasons. We recognize that God is looking for something different in your life. Bring you here so that you can know him. God is working your life even outside of the church. Then we have you come to know him more. You see, God is active. When we see here a picture of God sitting on his throne, but we also get a picture of the lamb. And we remember what the lamb looks like. Right back in chapter, back in chapter four, when the lamb was revealed, sorry, chapter five, when the lamb was revealed, it says here that the lamb, the lamb is standing there as though it has been slain. This reminds us that our God is not a passive God. It's not a God who simply just gives orders from his throne, but our God is one who came down to earth. Put on human flesh so that he can walk with us and know us and indeed redeem us. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 tells us who we are as human beings who have fell away from God. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says this We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Meaning, all that we do, even the good things that we do, are like polluted garments. We are, we are corrupted at the core, immoral. And that's the reason why the cross was so horrific, was so bloody, was so just violent. Because our sins were like that. Not just our sinful actions, but our sinfulness. Recognize, recognize what the saints look like here in Revelation. They're clothed not in polluted garments, but in white, pure white robes, washed by the blood of the Lamb, because Jesus Christ came down to earth, put on flesh, become like one of us. Our garments, our dirty garments, was. Placed upon Christ on the place on Christ, and he said, Here, put on these white robes, let my blood wash you 
Why a snowman? This is our God. This amazing God. This is our God. This is this lasts forever. These white robes represent a righteousness gained to us through the blood of Christ that endures forever. I, I was I was getting uh, it was weird today this earlier today I was getting my teeth cleaned and I was I was sitting there my dentist was like oh you got some coffee stains here let me go ahead and uh, I'm clean I up for you so your smile is bright as new and I was sitting there thinking about this passage and I was like. <laughs> All right, it'll be white, but um, you know what I'm gonna do once I get back to the office? I'm gonna drink coffee so it gets stained again. Exactly what I did. I drink coffee right after my dentist appointment. And and it gets stained again. But the white robes here that Jesus given to us once these white robes that have been washed in the blood of the lamb. If you think about blood, it's red, she has stained these robes, but no, this, this blood is so pure, so righteous. I mean symbolic, but it, it washes us white as snow and that's endures forever can't be stained again that's what jesus christ did on the cross that's why we worship him with reverence it's on the cross we see god's judgment god's sovereignty god's anger but you also see his love his grace and his mercy. We see every attribute of God shown to us through Christ. And then we see that God also invites us to worship him through relationship. And in verse 13, a question is asked, who are these? And we see here the identity of these, of these saints. In the, in the elder answer, John, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, just understand what does this mean? What does it mean by great tribulation? Again, there are different views, different views of what the great tribulation period is. One of you is that the great tribulation refers to now, refers to the church age now. This, these people most likely see Revelation as describing current events, current times, the current church age at this point. And so the great tribulation is what the church is suffering through today. Then others will say that great tribulation represents the whole seven years, and this is a future seven years, the whole seven years that described in Revelation 6 to 19. Then there are others who will say that great tribulation refers specifically to the second half. Of the seven year tribulation, so three and a half years of the latter three and a half. Again, you hold the different things, doesn't really matter. But we see here that there are ones who come out of this great tribulation, meaning God, God is preserving his church. Now, as we saw in our passage last week. God has sealed his church. God has sealed his people. God preserves his people. He protects them. He keeps them from falling away. In the same way here, those who are coming out of great tribulation have received God's protection. These are the ones who endure to the end. Both Jews and the Gentiles of all nations. And it says here, 
It says here in verse 15, these people, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And that word serve here can also be translated as worship. It's another word for worship. And here we see the word for worship is one of an act of service. One of an act of service. And here it says here he is serving day and night in his temple. So what we see here is that God's people who are saved, God's people who are clothed in white, who are washed white as snow by the blood, these people are serving him in his temple. This is a kingdom of priests. This is every one of us priests before God, serving God, worshiping God through service. This is the type of relationship that we have for God. We are working, serving God, loving Him, worshiping Him in this way. But more than that, look at how God builds His relationship to us. Since you're He who sits on the throne, will shelter them. His presence. Literally in the Greek, it's saying He will cast, set His tabernacle over them, dwell with them. God will be in our midst, in our presence, walking alongside with us. And when God is with us, no one can be against us. God, God here, God here cares about the relationship with his people. He's not just a God who sits aloof and sees all the service before him. He's a God who walks with each one of us. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows your life. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your strength. He created you. And he saved you. He here wants to walk with you and shelter you with his presence. We see here covenantal relationship. A relationship that, again, God desires all the time with his people. Ever since Abraham, he gave Abraham a covenant. The same with Israel. He gave Israel covenant. Same with the church. God desires to have such a relationship with his people. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 37 where here God says, speaking to Israel, but note here how God's speaking to Israel. He says this, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I'll set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Come to Israel. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then note this, then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. When my sanctuary is in their midst forever. You see how God, even in this promise to Israel, cares for the nations. He cares that the nation sees this. He cares that the nation knows who Israel is. But more than that, knows who is the God of Israel. Because he desires all people to know his name. We see this promise given to Israel. This promise given to Israel is a blessing for the rest of the world. 
and we see the fulfillment of that sincere revelation when all people have come from every tribe, every tongue, every language coming to worship him. And this year we see in Revelation a glimpse of the type of relationship God wants with his people. It's, it's a picture of us, the same serving God and God actively protecting his people. And then we see the blessings of this protection. We see the blessings of this relationship that we get to have with God in eternity. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them or any scorching heat. And we see here how all this, all this, this blessings. And, and these, these terms here is that the fact that we will hunger no more, the fact that we will thirst no more, these are not just spiritual realities. Yes, Jesus is indeed the, the bread of life. He is indeed the living water. In him, we our soul finds satisfaction, but there's also physical promises. In the new heaven and new earth, we shall no longer hunger. We shall no longer physically thirst. We will have bountiful of blessings and rewards. And we will not suffer physically anymore. Right? In verse 17, it says here that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These are promises given to us, not just the spiritual aspect. Yes, we will have this spiritual satisfaction of being with our God. But we will also have this physical satisfaction, knowing that God will bless us. That God will indeed give us all things. You see, this is important because as we think about, as we even think about this Advent season, right? We think about Christmas. We think about Jesus becoming flesh. That the this 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 aspect of becoming flesh, becoming something physical, matters because human beings we are both. Flesh and spirit, it matters. And so, for God to only satisfy spiritually, it's not enough, because that doesn't that doesn't redeem the whole the whole of humanity. We are both spirit and flesh. And so, God is not just redeeming us spiritually, but He's also seeking to restore us physically. And that's what God does. And that's why Jesus Christ had to become, had to come in the flesh as a man to represent us perfectly in this way. When we see here how this satisfaction, this physical satisfaction, is, this is a promise from God. It's a good thing. It's why we say enjoy food, enjoy Enjoy having a drink of water. Enjoy your boba. Enjoy, enjoy your gifts, right? Even during Christmas, we love giving gifts to each other. Enjoy those things. But recognize that all these things point to a greater promise in the future. And we will never hunger and thirst again. We will find everlasting satisfaction. All these gifts are temporary comfort, and they're meant to point us to something greater, something more fulfilling, something better. 
eat out of the promises that we turn in. And this challenges us. This challenges us to ask about, again, why do we come to church? Why do we believe? You see, sometimes if you're struggling with apathy for God, right? You're struggling just having, stoking this fire for God, wondering why should I care? Many times it's because we end up trying to make ourselves feel better here and now. And we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to seek that earthly pleasure now. And, and we think this is what we need. This is what we want. And it's true. It is what we want. We do want satisfaction. It's, it's why we have hunger pains. It's why we experience joys in this life. It's why you know, when, when I get to exercise and play basketball, it's, it's awesome. I, I'm, I'm joyful in those times, right? It's physical activity. Those are all good things. But get this. We come to church, we come to know God, we are longing for something better. We're longing to know that peace, temporary satisfaction, is supposed to create a deeper craving for eternal satisfaction, both spiritual and physical, that awaits us in the future. It's supposed to be a taste. It's supposed to point us towards something this also is a great vacation because when we look around the world and we think especially during Christmas time when there's a lot of charity going on a lot of different soup kitchens helping those who may be struggling to find food during this cold season and we recognize these are good things and these are good works to go help out at a homeless shelter, to give to Samaritan prayers and give gifts to children around the world, to, to provide water for those who live in countries without clean water. Uh, these are good things. These are things we should value. These are things we should do. And we recognize here that the reality of God's promises, the reality of what we do are not just spiritual. We're not just going to go into a pop in impoverished country and say, hey, I have the Bible for you, but I'm not going to do anything by hunger. These things are, we, we, don't, we don't ignore those realities. We recognize that physical reality matters because God cares as well. He's seeking to redeem that. And so we feed those who are hungry. We give water to those who are thirsty. And we help those who are needy. And we do that we do that not just not just because we can, not just because we have to, we do that because we care. We care about these things because God cares about these things. But as we do that, we again we do it and we remind them, we're giving you bread and we will continue to help you out. I also want to give you something more. I want to point you to a guy who can give you satisfaction. And trust me, these people who are needy, who are hungry, who are thirsty, they, were, they know what's like to crave for that much more than we They want to hear that news. They want to hear that news that there is a God who cares for them. He promised to give them eternal satisfaction, both physically and spiritually. God. Paul does that 
Jesus does that. He died on the cross for our sins. He died on the cross for their sins, for all people. And we remember, we remember and we hear the, the awesome words of verse 17, the lamb, the bloody lamb, the lamb who was slain in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. We get the imagery of Psalm 23 here. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. They will experience no more pain. This is a great promise from God. And yes, to get to this point means that we have to go through this great tribulation. It means that this world will go through great suffering. It means that sin will indeed be judged and the world will feel God's anger. In the end, for all who endures to the end, for all who are protected by God, washed by the blood of the Lamb, for all of us who believe, we will experience great eternal joy that will satisfy our souls and our stomachs forever. Come believe this God and come proclaim this God to the world. For God indeed, Christ indeed, is the joy of the world. So the big idea that the Lamb of God, Christ, brings together saints from every nation to know God and to worship Him. Simple. Let us recognize this. Let us remember this, especially during this time of Christmas when we celebrate Christ coming to the flesh. It means so much. It means so much to all of us. And it should mean a lot more to the world, to the rest of the world. Let's spread this good news to all that we need, to every person to this day. Because God is searching. He desires all people to be saved. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus Christ who reigns on high, Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you, God, for, for revealing him to us, for opening up the eyes of our heart to see Christ for who he is, to see you for who you are, an awesome Savior who is kind and loving and compassionate one who cares for all people, one who is right now seeking to bring people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and become worshipers. We thank you, God, that we get to experience this worship here and now, small taste of it. And we, Lord, we come to you, we worship you in reverence, we worship you relationship. We come to you knowing that you are our God and we are your people. Thank you, Lord, for, for being there for us. Let us then continue to sing to you and give you all the honor and glory that you deserve. I pray all this in your name. Amen.